Today's scripture lesson comes from the book of Luke, the 23rd chapter, the 13th through the 24th verses. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and released. Then they all shouted out together, Away with this fellow! Release Barabbas for us! This was a man who had been put into prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgingly demanding with loud shouts, that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's a pretty weird Palm Sunday not what we had wanted or what we had planned. We were gonna knock it out of the park today. Oh, that's what we've all been working toward. There was supposed to be like 40 people in the chairs back there behind me getting ready to sing this most beautiful cantata. There were supposed to be a dozen or more musicians right here on the chancel and, and where the altar stands providing accompaniment. The Worthington Brass was supposed to be here to do the prelude and the postlude and do the hallelujah chorus for us at the end. Sneak peek, we're going to have video of them for next week, including the hallelujah chorus, so don't miss that on Easter. But we had palms ordered for this joyous parade with our kids up and down the aisles, and of course, you, you were supposed to be here with your families, with your church family filling up these pews, taking it all in, hearing again this powerful story of Jesus' passion, being drawn deeper into faith, worshiping God with your whole heart here. You were supposed to be here. That's what we were planning, but not this year, not this Palm Sunday. Instead, we worship at home, separated from each other. The music and the palm parade and the full sanctuary, it's going to have to wait for another day. And I just want to say this morning that I'm sad about it, and I've been sad about it for days. And I, I know many, many of you are too. Of course, it's no surprise that this is where we are. This is our fourth week now of worshiping online only. And and it's good that we're doing that, but I think it's also important that we just take a moment to be honest about the moment that we recognize what it is that we're missing today. 
even while we understand that we're doing this for the good of the community and for the safety of our neighbors and for the health of our families, it doesn't mean that worship isn't still wonderful today, and it has been wonderful. Thank you to everyone who's participating. It doesn't mean that the folks that are here are not awesome uh, and that the technology that we have that helps us be online is not fabulous. We can say all that is wonderful, and we're so grateful to God for all of it. We can say that and also be sad that we're not getting to have the kind of Palm Sunday that we wanted to have. I hope that you're doing something like that at home, too, that you're taking time to talk about the things you're missing, taking time to talk about your feelings, making space to be sad together as the calendar goes on and we miss more and more things. Now, we don't want to get stuck in those moments of despair as we go through April, but we also don't want to gloss over the very real losses that we're experiencing because we can't gather together. So, it's Palm Sunday. Not the Palm Sunday we wanted, but Palm Sunday nonetheless. And even without all of our big plans, I am so grateful that the power of the story, of Jesus' story, remains for us. You know, that's what drives all that celebration, all that planning, the powerful story of what happened to Jesus when he came into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And no virus, no illness, no social upheaval, no isolation can take the power of that story from us. For the last several weeks, if you've been tuning in, you know that we've been considering together the power of second chances, about how our God is a God of second chances. And we've seen the amazing things that God can do with a second chance. We saw it in the story of Moses, the murderer, and David, the adulterer, and Zacchaeus, the tax cheat, and Peter, the betrayer, and last week, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus. Today, we have another story of a second chance, not for an individual, but for a whole group of people, a whole crowd of people, for everyone, actually, that was there in Jerusalem for the Passover festival alongside Jesus. They got a second chance. It's just that they refused to take it. At first, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it seems like nobody's going to need a second chance. And in fact, it seems like things couldn't be going any better that scene at the start of the week when Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Listen to how the gospel writer Luke records it. He says, as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for the deeds of power they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The stones would shout out. The crowd is so exultant, the moment so full of joy and so real that if the people lost their voices, the very earth would begin to cry out, Jesus says. The power of the crowd, it makes for this glorious moment at Jesus' entry, but it doesn't last. You know it doesn't last. As we read on, we see that Jesus goes to teach in the temple, and he finds such corruption there that he gets angry, and he drives out the merchants from the courtyard. And then as the days progress, and he goes back and tries to teach again and again, he gets into one argument after another with the religious leadership. The tension grows and grows as we read on until just days before Passover, 
one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, he agrees to arrange for Jesus' arrest by betraying his movement to the authorities. And Jesus, he seems to know what's afoot. He arranges for a Passover supper with his disciples, and while they're in the upper room, he says, I will not be eating and drinking again until the kingdom of God comes. And they can hardly believe what he's saying to them, but they don't have to wonder long because after a moment of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas brings the guards and the authorities, and late in the night, Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the high priest's house first. And there in that courtyard, that's where Peter, his chief disciple, denies ever knowing Jesus and then runs away ashamed. Inside that house, Jesus is beaten, and then he's taken before the council of elders and questioned, and it does not go well. They pronounce him guilty. They they say he's a blasphemer and an insurrectionist, but they, they don't have the ability to carry out a death sentence. They can't themselves rid themselves of Jesus for good. They need the Romans to get involved for an execution to take place, and so they take him to the Roman governor, to Pontius Pilate. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually goes before Pilate twice because Pilate first tries to pawn him off on Herod as soon as he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean and Herod was in charge of the area of Galilee. But Herod doesn't want anything to do with Jesus either, so he sends him back to Pilate. And when Jesus returns to Pilate's court, we discover that the tone of the crowd has radically changed from those shouts of the triumphal entry. Now they're, sh- they're shouting, but instead they're saying, crucify him. Pilate, he seems hesitant. You heard in the scripture that Denny read. He doesn't seem to think that Jesus is such a big problem. He he doesn't seem to think that Jesus has made such a big mess, and he offers the leaders and the crowd a chance to spare Jesus' life. He offers them a second chance to avoid killing this innocent man, but the crowd won't take the second chance. The crowd will not be appeased by anything less than death. The crowd has judged Jesus as guilty, and they do not want to reconsider their options. The crowd yells at Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, and so Pilate does. Can you imagine being there in that crowd? Thousands of people gathered before Pilate. You know, it it wouldn't have taken every person shouting all at once to condemn Jesus. I like to imagine there were some people in that crowd who were uneasy about what was happening, who kept silent, or or maybe there were even some quietly hoping that Jesus would be freed, people who had believed in his message and, and saw the injustice of it all, but they were overpowered. They were shut out by the bloodthirsty around them. Or maybe I'm just thinking that because I don't want to have to face the idea that if I were there, if I were a part of that crowd that day in Jerusalem, I don't want to think about that I might be yelling for death too, or that I might be too scared to do anything but just go along. As we consider these last days of Jesus' life, I think it can be easy for us to look back on the crowd and and call them some kind of brutal, ancient people who are so different from us. Or we might be tempted to say, well, they were just ignorant. They were just foolish. And we are so much more enlightened than they. We would never do such a thing. But as soon as we're tempted to say that, it won't take long for us to think of dozens and dozens of historical examples of crowds doing things just as foolish and just as unjust as what the crowd did to Jesus. 
from that day all the way up till now. In our own country, the awful history of lynching is case in point. You know, according to the NAACP, 4,700 people were lynched between 1882 and 1968 in this country. 4,700 people. And all kinds of people were lynched, and some of those deaths might have been of guilty people, but we know the overwhelming majority of those killed were black men, and many, many, many of them were innocent. Lynching was used as a way to terrorize the black population, to reinforce segregation and white supremacy. And did you hear that those figures go until 1968? We were still lynching people in 1968, and a lot of you were alive in 1968. The cruelty and the injustice of a frenzied crowd is not something that we can relegate to the ancient past. The crowd in today's story could just as easily be us. That crowd surrounding Jesus, they were given a chance to set Jesus free, and they didn't do it. And their behavior reminds us that not only do we turn away from God as individuals, we do it as a collective. We turn away from God as a society. We turn away from God as a group. And and most times it is much, much harder to get the group, the collective, the whole, to see the error of their ways. Even if we just think we're all good people trying to get along, it doesn't take very much tension or very much fear or very much threat to turn us into an angry mob incapable of seeing God who's right in front of us. And what's Jesus' response to this? To seeing the crowd whipped up in a frenzy around him, hearing their shouts of condemnation. They say crucify him and he says nothing. He submits to his fate. Writer Frederick Buechner says it so powerfully when he writes of this moment. Pilate told the people they could choose to spare the life of either a murderer named Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth, and they chose Barabbas. Given the same choice, Jesus, of course, would have chosen to spare Barabbas too. Buechner continues, to understand the reason in each case would be to understand much of what the New Testament means by saying that Jesus is the Savior and much of what it means, too, by saying that, by and large, people are bad in need of being saved. Jesus would have chosen to spare Barabbas, too. That's what it means to be the God of second chances. Jesus' heart was set on bringing life and healing. He he wouldn't have chosen a, a second chance for Barabbas before freeing himself. He would have always chosen a second chance for Barabbas before freeing himself. But it wasn't just for Barabbas that Jesus had this ultimate compassion and mercy. It was for everyone that was there. Right? Jesus chose to go to the cross for the angry mob in front of him. He stood in front of that crowd that was shouting, crucify him. He saw how little they loved him in that moment. He saw how fully they had rejected his message of mercy, how completely they had turned away from his invitation to joy. He saw how far they were from him in that moment, and in response, he went to the cross for them. They fully rejected their second chance to embrace his love, and he offered up his life for them. Friends, that's what it means to have a savior 
that's what it meant for them, and that's what it means for us. When we're so turned around that we can't even think of running toward God, but instead just hurl stones and insults as we walk away, God still gives everything for us. That's divine love. That's grace. Today, I want you to remember Jesus before that angry crowd and not have any doubt about the depth of God's love for you. God loves us enough to keep on loving us even when we're at our worst, our most fearful, our most angry, our most awful. God never stops loving us. So think about Jesus there in front of the angry crowd. I want to remind you and I want to remind myself I want to remind all of us that Jesus faced the worst that life has to give, and it didn't deter him from his mission to save the world. He, he endured it. I mean, it doesn't get worse than an angry crowd in front of you screaming for your death. But Jesus endured it. He refused to plead his case or bargain for his freedom. Instead, he set his face toward the cross for love. He did it for mercy he did it for grace. He did it because he wanted to shut down their finger pointing, to stop their fear, to bind up their broken ways, to heal them. He wanted to heal them. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that we have this moment in Jesus' passion story of the crowd rejecting him because it reminds us that not only do we turn away from God as individuals, we do it as a group, but God doesn't turn away from us. And all the things that God wants for us as individuals, God wants for the world, for society, for us collectively. So think about those things, peace and hope and healing and love. Those are the gifts that God wants to give to you and me and give to the entire world to give to us together. Now, the world is upside down right now. And some of us are experiencing the pain of it much more sharply than others, but it's affecting us all and it's going to continue to affect us all. We know that God didn't cause the coronavirus. God doesn't send illness upon the world to punish us. That's not who God is. Instead, we can remember how deep is God's love for us today and trust that God is at work tending us, bringing healing and restoration and hope, not just for you and me as individuals, but for us together. Not just for our families, but for the entire world. As the crowd stands before him in need of mercy and grace, God is ready to give and give and give. You know, I like to end every week with a challenge for you, some way to help us draw closer to God, some sort of spiritual discipline or, or some act to do to help us live out our faith. Well, my challenge for you this week is pretty simple. To help us hold on to that mercy and grace of God in this holy week, I want to challenge you to read the passion story, the whole thing, from that moment that Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the moment he's placed in the tomb. I suspect that you're going to have an extra 20 or 30 minutes this week. I think that you'll be able to find time to do it. You can do it with me on Zoom. Like I said at the beginning of worship, we're going to do that two different times on Thursday. So if you want to do it as a collective, please uh, log on to do that. Or you might do it with your family, with your spouse, or you might just find a quiet moment when you can do it yourself. Choose any gospel. But if you want a suggestion, I'd say the gospel of Luke. That's the gospel we've been reading from these last four weeks in worship. So read the story. Read it in all its power. 
read it in all its pain, read the story, and see the depth of God's love. God's love for you, God's love for me, God's love for us together. God's love for this entire world that Jesus came to save. Thanks be to God. Amen.